welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. I'm Corey. And this is our review of The Wolf of Snow Hollow, starring Jim Cummings, Ricky Lindholm, Chloe East, Jimmy Tatro, and Robert Forster. Written and directed by Jim Cummings, released in 2020 to theaters and video on demand simultaneously on a $2 million budget. Corey, welcome back to Filmstrip. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Tell folks a little bit about yourself and your podcast and writing. Well, I am a teen horror blogger. I run the blog GoryCorey.com. I'm a teen correspondent for Fangoria Magazine, and I am the co-host of the Scream Teens podcast, where we talk about Gen Z and horror films and kind of our connection to horror. Awesome stuff. Go to GoryCorey.com. The link is in the podcast description because uh, this is your idea. Um, So we were talking about this in kind of outtakes uh, from uh, when you and Anthony from Tis the Podcast and I were recording the Scream 2022 review uh, back in January. And, you know, it was time to finally tackle a big subject in the horror genre that we somehow not covered a lot of. uh, And that's werewolves with one notable exception. If you go all the way back to 2012 and episode 57, you can listen to Nick and I tear Stephen King's silver bullet limb from limb. And um, so, cause that is a bad movie, but a fun one. And, and we both rated it as such, but uh, yeah, we haven't done werewolves on this podcast much at Why all. Not? So I, that is the magic question. I don't know. I think <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly what I said on that show, but I never was. It wasn't that I was anti werewolf. I just didn't gravitate toward those movies. There as aren't a, a lot of, werewolf movies it's the genre has kind of fallen off yeah yeah i mean the, i think the most famous one that like i in my lifetime was an american werewolf in london yeah, definitely. which i didn't see up until just a few years ago and so that you know i missed that one along the way but sorry what's your background with werewolves in movies and, and also why did you pick this movie for us to review Okay, so werewolves were definitely like one of my biggest introductions to horror. I was obsessed with them as a kid. Uh, I really liked Scooby-Doo, and so I really liked like the werewolf episodes in there. And then I had this Alvin and the Chipmunks DVD that they met the Wolfman, and I was obsessed with it. So it was like kindergarten. I was obsessed with werewolves. And then, you know, Disney Channel had werewolves and like Wizards of Waverly Place, and Nickelodeon had this movie called The Girl Who Cried Werewolf. So I got a lot of werewolf content as a kid. Monster High had a lot of werewolves. So I've always really, really loved werewolves. In 2020, when this movie came out, I was so excited to watch it because I hadn't been able to see a werewolf movie, like a new one in so long. And uh, Fangoria recommended it. And I was like, absolutely, I will watch anything you tell me to. (laughs) And I thought about it because Jim Cummings, the director and the star of it, he goes to he he's an alum from my school, Emerson. And they're doing like a, a screening of it in a week. So I was like, let's do this. Well, that's awesome. So you're actually get to, to hear him and hear him oh, talk about it's gonna this. It's going to be so that, cool. I can't that wait. That's going to be fun. I, I shall be following uh, your Twitter account and uh, <laughs> getting play by play of that. Uh, yeah. Because that is awesome. Now, Ron, um, you know, everyone knows you ran like a Ginger Snaps fan site for a long time, but what's your other background <laughs> with uh, with werewolves? That, that's a joke, but Ron's been after me to do that movie for years. I'm, so. I'm, oh I'm my after, God, why haven't you? Again. We, yeah, I've been after Jay to do Ginger Snaps for a long, long time. I'm, I'm stunned that he hasn't seen American Werewolf in London until recently. 
Have you seen The Howling at least? I've seen yes, I've seen The Howling. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. like like Corey, I, go, I I am a fan of werewolves from way back. Uh, of course, my way back was probably before she was born. But one of the first shows that they had on the Fox Network was a show about a dude who was a werewolf, and he got the pentagram in the, his palm, and like. I, I just remember the opening of the, the first episode of the show was like these people like making out in the car. And then all of a sudden you hear the claws like on the top of the car and the scrape. <laughs> the, and then he just like rips the door off and grabs a guy out and chucks him and does terrible werewolf things. I just remember that really vividly. And I was like, all right, I like hairy monsters and I grew up to be one. So <laughs> it's fitting <laughs> that that's just kind of how, you know, how my life has turned out. Yeah, you know, I'll say this about the werewolf content stuff. Like, obviously, there's a big werewolf character too in the Buffy verse, and so you know, I lived through that when when Brian and I were reviewing that show. So there's that in things, and then you know, I, I don't know if you count Teen Wolf or not. I mean, I watched that movie a ton growing up because Michael J. Fox was you know like in my area. You know, that's just what we we did. He and he was a big star you know as a kid for me and so anything he was in i watched i've even seen teen wolf too a couple of times sad to say uh but uh and then i and Corey, you know i've talked about like we both liked the teen wolf mtv oh, tv I show love MTV teen and, wolf. yeah and ron i know you i think you even covered that for den of geek it, yeah i covered uh teen wolf for den of geek for like five seasons ish oh, that's awesome yeah so i'm not averse to them i've just never watched a lot of movies with werewolves in them in fact i think i've named the three that i've seen besides this one uh if we don't count teen wolf and if we do we'll count we'll count that as four uh so it's just one of those like glaring pieces i don't know i didn't uh it wasn't that i was again averse to them i just didn't buy them now i do i will say this back when um we did the Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective and we got to Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I've often said that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is best understood if you go watch the Michael Landon 1950s movie, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and then you watch that right mm-hmm. after it, you get a completely different appreciation for that movie. Right. I think that's what they were going for, among other things, in that movie. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I think it's, it's a genre, like you say, that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, and so when you brought this up, I said, oh, yeah. And I, w- I just watched the trailer for it on YouTube. And I was like, oh, yeah, this look, this is going to be good. Like, I recognize a couple of these people. I wish I, I thought, oh, I know Jim Cummings from things. And what I realized is, no, I only know him from Halloween Kills. Like, I don't know any of his stuff. He just has a face that I think I should know. Uh, I think but, he's probably done a lot more, like, coverage and stuff for a lot of horror movies. He's definitely yeah. been in the community for a long time. Yeah. But I I liked his energy. And, and it gets in that trailer. And then they were like, oh, it's like Robert Forrester. It's his last thing. Okay, I'm down for that. And I just had to google i was like how did you get robert forrester to do this and jim cummings tells the story like we expected a very polite no but apparently robert forrester really got into the whole like father-son dynamic and i was like That's oh awesome. how sweet so yeah. i i was down for it uh for that and i thought okay well this will be different and it's a different experience this movie than what i expected so that that'll be a, a good beginning into it but yeah i i didn't know anything about this wouldn't have known it if you hadn't mentioned it of course so i think it's cool you're gonna get to hear him talk about it though Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait. I'd be, I'm, I'm really interested in this thought process and I, I hope we can get a good um, play by play. Yeah. I will I'm, write it all down. I'm fascinated with how his, his mind works being he's the, you know, writer, director, producer, star. Um, it, it's a, this movie is totally really weird to me. And it's a very, it's really unique and his really writing style and directing style. Like they're, it just doesn't seem like it should work, but I, it does. It's really interesting. 
Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Like, there's so much about this that I was surprised that like, oh, we're doing that? And I, I'm like, mm, is that going to work? And then I was like, it kind of does. You know, I mean, it's sort of, I I was trying to describe this for a friend who knew we were recording this. And he said, what was the movie about? And I said, well, I don't want to spoil it. You should go watch it. And he said, well, what's the style? And I was like, kind of this <laughs> Coen Brothers meets this Jim Carrey horror movie sort of yeah. thing. And there's a lot of snow. <laughs> he was like, Okay. <laughs> you know, there's a trained. werewolf, but there isn't a werewolf. I was like, there there's is. kind of this wolf action. I said, I, you just need to see it. There's a tall mm-hmm. person. It's weird. It's Utah. So it's <laughs> kind of like this whole, like I said, it's this sort of Coen Brothers, Raising Arizona, Fargo kind of world, but slammed into the town from Silver Bullet that, you know, is not run by drunks or, or whiny children. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's really all I know to say or Corey game, you know, either or. So it's, yeah, I guess we should do the plot summary. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this real high level. Cause again, there's a lot that goes on. We'll get into it as we go, but Jim Cummings plays officer John Marshall and he's cracking under the pressure. He's a recovering alcoholic. He's trying to cover for his ailing father, the sheriff, played by Robert Forrester. He's trying to keep up with his teenage daughter, who uh, hates him uh, for reasons. And he's dealing with all the other nimcompoops who run the Snow Hollow Police Department, including himself. These may be the worst cops ever, next to like Brooklyn 911 and Reno 911. Standing by his side, though, is loyal fellow deputy Julia Robson, who may actually be the only competent person in the movie or in the whole town, maybe in the whole state, uh, played by Ricky Lindholm. Complicating matters is a series of grisly murders, which the media and some of his compadres speculate are the work of a werewolf. This makes John very angry, and his anger flashes at very inopportune times. It strange relationships in the town with his family and even causes him to fall off the wagon. And we even see a few of these attacks, and there appears to be an actual werewolf, really tall one involved. But, however, turns out John is right all along. There is no werewolf. Instead, it's a taxidermist named Paul, who I thought was Paul Shearer on stilts, and we'll get to that Me in a too. minute. Yeah, it dresses up as a wolf, bear, man, bear, pig costume thing, and uses a variety of cutting tools to commit the murders. Why? Who knows? John just figures this out through some drop lines and some clues and several misadventures and having a conversation with the taxidermist while returning some evidence. Um, who eventually attacks him, but Julia arrives and shoots Paul before an injured John finishes him off, shooting him in the face a bunch. John heals from his attack, and he and Julia take his daughter to college, where John sighs, frustrated from uh, the wolves that are on campus. But he takes comfort in knowing he's equipped his daughter with protection, condoms, and her grandfather's service pistol, as credits roll. And that's about the best way I can walk us through this thing. It's not a real linear movie, and I think that's one of the things to talk about in the movie, is that it cuts back and forth all the time. It's got all these sort of interesting asides and it's it's a whole aesthetic this this whole flick it's because it's a really weird mix of like that kind of jim jarmusch deadpan a comedy of absurdity but then there's these also these surprisingly strong emotional scenes mm-hmm. i mean maybe it, it hit differently for me because it hits a lot of the things that that tweak me especially this time of year but uh it, it was really it's really an interesting gumbo of a movie yeah, it is a gumbo. And yeah. and Jim Cummings himself is giving a gumbo performance. I mean, he is like Nicolas Cage. And I'm not talking about like modern Nicolas Cage, but sort of old school Cage and a little bit of Jim Carrey, but mixed with like Tom Atkins a little bit without the mustache. Like that's mm-hmm. the vibe I got off of it. Yeah, totally. 
Well, and it's such a it's such an interesting role too because he has to balance out all this like comedy, but also this really intense anger and and how stressed he is. And yeah. so there are so many moments where he just like flips and gets so angry, and it's really interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah, we should say like he gets into fistfights with other you know, officers. He's a the worst person at the staff meeting. I mean, he sees a, and him and his daughter have a whole like fight on the side of the road where he's shooting up at a werewolf and you know she's making out with her boyfriend i mean there's all kinds of just stuff but like you say all the people in this movie though have that quirkiness to them and you kind of get that from the from the get-go and the one thing I'll, i'll say about this and and this is i think a credit to his writing is he balances out all of this quirky dialogue and these kind of off-kilter personalities with some gorgeous cinematography like yeah. the way this movie is shot it looks great the fact that they did this for two million bucks that i mean it's I all how over they did that yeah, yeah it's incredible yeah this movie looks amazing yeah i mean there's some deep crane shots looking down on the snow and i mean you, you just get this sort of starkness of this <laughs> place and it's a fictional place and i you know i've spent very little time out west like that but it's gorgeous you know looking like this i almost wanted to uh, message our friend michael scott go like is this what this place looks like by the way you need to see this movie but i mean i may do that you know after we're done but i mean really like it's it's this gorgeous mountains that one of my friends who who, uh, does sports broadcasting his favorite place to go do games is where utah state is because their stadium has the most gorgeous view and he has it like on his Twitter account. And it's just a beautiful view. And I can see why, like it's easy to get lost in all of that stuff. And I've also always thought like snow and blood are a great cinematic Perfect. mix because yeah. it's such a contrast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that scene, especially with the, I think it was the ski instructor mm-hmm. where she's getting mm-hmm. murdered is like all of the scenes where the wolf is killing people are so intense and they just look so terrifying on that snow. He really takes advantage of it. Like he, he just makes it look so perfect. Yeah. I mean, we, we open up with the Airbnb from hell, you know, and the, the couple that's trying to get away from the weekend and um, they are out to eat and they kind of get into it with a couple of locals. There's this movie is also should be called the wolf of red herring of snow hollow. Cause there's lots of those in this. And Including who's the guy with the tattoo burning the brush pile, by the way, just remind me of that. Cause I got questions, but they, they are doing this and then they're making out in the hot tub. Cause that's what you do. And no, it's not really what you should do by the way. It's not very <laughs> hygienic, but it's what you do in movies. And of course he gets out to go, you know, prepare and she gets murdered and he comes out and finds her corpse. And I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a startling jump the way, like the first 10 minutes of this are just sort of, okay, is this a comedy? Like what's going on? And then all of a sudden it's just this gore factory happening right in front of us. Yeah. You're kind of like smirking along and chuckling. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a scene from Hannibal. There's just like pieces and blood everywhere. Yeah. That's like exactly the tone of this movie though, because so much of it is so funny and you're sitting there laughing and then immediately someone dies. Yeah. And they die in these horrific, horrific oh, yeah. ways. I mean, they, and they, the descriptions that they go through and all that stuff, it is very Hannibal. And I mean, like Hannibal, the TV show, I think it's what you're referencing, Ron. And yeah, very much just out of nowhere, this stuff. And you've got, you know, we see our killer in the opening scene. That's the funny thing about it, a movie like this is if you go back and watch it again, you realize the clues are dropped for you the, all the way because there's no knives or anything mm-hmm. in this Airbnb. And it's because the guy who owns it is the taxidermist who's 
perpetrating all this and he's removed all the weapons presumably because he's using all of them but there's no there's nothing to fight back with mm-hmm. and and i was like oh that's actually really smart and that's when i realized because i went through this twice because i watched this movie and i was like okay i gotta make sure i got this and it's only 84 minutes which is really only like 75 so i just watched it again and i thought okay this makes so much more sense the second time through. Because the thing about a whodunit is, if it's any good, you even knowing how it works out, it's fun to go back and rewatch them to see, like, yeah. oh, did they drop clues? Did you know? Did they tell me too much? And they, I mean, they lay it out like it's really well weaved. And I got to give Jim Cummings some credit for that because uh, lesser movies have tried to do that and failed at it, and he really does a good job of balancing all that. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's really smart with that. And I think the whole movie, the first time I watched it, even the second time around, I I just did not know who did it. Like, I could not figure it out. Yeah, it's really well crafted and it's really thoughtfully put together from a script standpoint in, in that he's weaving these little clues in so that on second watch and on third watch, you see more things than you did on the first watch. But yeah. even when you watch it on first watch, it still kind of it still ties together well. Yeah. I mean, there's all those scenes at the different funerals that he's at. And of course, John can't sit still and you're, you're paying attention to him. But if you look in the background, you see it just gets clearer and clearer that the taxidermist is at every one of the funerals too. And he gets more in focus. And I'm like, that's like some smart stuff right there. Like that's Paul Thomas Anderson stuff yeah. right there that lesser filmmakers don't do and don't bother with that's you know that's where it's also where i kind of felt like coen brothers i'm like oh i feel like i'm watching blood simple again you know which i think is a heavy influence on this movie like in a major way yeah that's a good catch here yeah yeah i mean that that's a i mean you can feel it too and i but i like that because it's mixing that with also like the humor level of something again like me myself and irene you know because there's times when jim cummings is definitely doing a jim carrey riff and like the good jim carrey riff and i'm 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 laughing and i was like he like did they cross paths somewhere is this just sort of him doing stuff but i i really got a kick out of his humor and the way that it works and the way he interacts with everybody else too and that's the other thing is that the ensemble cast, the rest of the cops and stuff, I think I aptly described them. They are all nimcompoops. Like they are just, they are so out of nowhere. Yeah. They're all the most bumbling cops. It's almost out of a March brothers thing, Ron. Yeah. Well, and he could have really, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, they reminded me a lot of a serious version of the cops from super troopers. Mm. If those guys were in a grounded world, yeah. <laughs> Be these kind of shenanigans. Yeah. And I feel like he really could have like leaned into to making them just like the dumb, incompetent cops. But he didn't necessarily like he could have used that and milked that for more humor, but he didn't. He made it really serious at the same time and very, very stressful for for John. And you could see how much it was bothering him. I think one of the things that aids this is it, it's got people in it that you, you recognize some of them, but some of them you don't know from anything really. And that makes them sort of meld into whatever role they are, but they play so real. They seem so lived yeah. in, you know, like when he's having that argument with the, with the one officer about like, you should have stuck to computer science. Cause you're clearly very bad at being a police officer and they, you know, they're doing all that stuff. I got a real kick out of that. I was like, you, you can tell like these guys probably were, I don't know, track rivals in high school or some nonsense, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's history here yeah. that is, it's hard to layer into a movie that's this short and this cheap and this small, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a credit to the way that it all plays out and all the, there's all the side characters too. 
uh, you know, his ex-wife and that, I mean, that's straight out of a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, that whole diner interaction thing there, that's wackadoo. And they all feel like very specific characters. They don't feel necessarily, they don't feel like tropes. They don't feel like tropes. No. They feel like three-dimensional characters. And the one Absolutely. thing you can say about the, a movie like this is that to write it well doesn't cost you anything extra in the budget. It just costs time and effort. And it's mm-hmm. clear that they that uh, Cummings put a lot of time and a lot of effort into this script, into making these characters feel something more rounded than, uh, than they could have easily been. You could have gone for the broader, funnier stuff because you've got some some really funny comedic actors in there. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Ricky Lindholm, who is really funny in a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And my favorite part of the show, Another Period, which is a great show, or was a great show. But he doesn't lean on them to go too broad, but he's confident enough in the performers that he's got, in the script that he's got, that it can be funny without uh, without sweating, so to speak. Yeah, yeah no, that's exactly right, yeah. No, I, I think it's it's a great collection of folks. And as we kind of bounce through the different pieces here and everything kind of weaves in and out, you get to see this guy again just sort of cracking at the seams the whole way through. And I, what did y'all think about him and like all the way that it just sort of – everything just jumps from scene to scene to scene. There's, there's not a lot of transition. Like we just sort of go from crime scene to AA meeting – to staring at the wall in my office to bad staff meeting. Like it just, there's a lot of just in and out that sort of keeps you on your toes. I really liked that. And I thought it was a a great kind of representation of his mental state, because especially when you're like, if you, if you're going through that much stuff or if you're really mentally ill or an alcoholic, like stuff, stuff happens in moments. Like you don't necessarily remember going places but you remember the things that are happening at a moment and so I thought that was really interesting and a really cool way to portray kind of what he was going through at the time and I also really liked all of the takes on like toxic masculinity that he was he was showcasing and his dad was showcasing um thought it was really interesting yeah let's talk about Robert Forrester I mean literally hanging on by a thread here You're giving it everything he's left that he's got in this and that's the like trope of his character is they're all sort of covering for him, particularly John to just try to get him through the end of, you know, the, the term or whatever, so that he can retire. And I'm like, man, he could have retired a long time ago. Like what, what is yeah. this guy doing? Like, but I think you're onto something, Corey, that's supposed to be saying something to us, right? Mm-hmm. Cause well, the only like competent person too- is the other woman in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, he's too proud to quit. And it's like, please, we all just want you to not be here. Like none of us, you're not helping anyone. But um, it was so annoying to watch, but it really did kind of, I I really enjoyed that. And I thought their father-son dynamic was really interesting with how he had to keep covering up for him. And and yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was a, they had a really good, uh, they had a really good relationship. Uh, It felt like the two actors, the two performers played yeah. off of each other really well. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because it's Robert Forrester. He's, he was a living legend. He'd done hunt. He'd been in all kinds of stuff and had been acting for decades by this point. And he really knows this stuff. He's really good at, at this role where he's fighting off irrelevancy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And having worked in, in a couple situations where the boss has hung on a little bit too long, or the boss has been having health problems and, 
someone else, usually me, had to cover for them. I can empathize with uh, with the uh, the Jim Cummings character with the son, but having also lost my own father, I could empathize a lot with his concern about his dad's health, his concern about you know the uh, the deterioration of his father and the, the extra layer of stress that kind of puts on you. Um, yeah. Although my dad wasn't a slow death. My dad was a pretty sudden death, but it was a, you know, like a rough two weeks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but still you, you're right. You've it, when you've lived that and seen that it's something that it you can tie into and it makes again, what could just be a cheap horror comedy, you know, horror comedy, that but it makes it gives it so much more depth and i think that's what we're talking about is that this movie has a lot of depth to it yeah i think both his relationship with his dad and his relationship with his daughter are very clear like emotional points where you can really see more depth in his character and you can see just how much stress he's under and how badly he wants to just do well for them and and help them but he simply can't and it's really heartbreaking but as someone who's also kind of a stress junkie and stuff, I can say this from, from whence I know John is also the cause of most of his own stress. Like yeah. He, he does stress. You stretch yourself out too. Like he, he causes his own problems. And sometimes yeah. that's the, it's your own process is that I have to create a fire because I'm good at putting them out, mm-hmm. you know, and that's sort of him. And I don't know. I, I got a kick out of that because all of that is happening as we get in between the, you know, the kills. Like we have the, girl killed in the beginning and then we have the ski instructor girl uh, that gets killed and we get to see her do like the whole pizza french fries bit on the snowboard uh, earlier which is fun and i, I mean I, when they show her do that scene i'm like well she's clearly the next victim like that's they're setting this up they're playing along those lines but the way she goes down man i mean that's a, a pretty brutal fight and that is a yeah. long sequence of that thing attacking her yeah, the kills in this movie are so good for that reason. Um, I mean, he really dragged that one out, but it was so, I think, worth it because you really see how brutal the murderers really are. And I also really like the scene before she gets murdered where we see like her see the guy and you can kind of see him like stand up as he's watching her and you can see how uncomfortable she is and how she knows something is wrong. That was so real to me because I've been in so many of those situations and I was like, this is too close to home like it was it was really good yeah we need to talk about will madden who plays the paul taxidermy character that dude is freakishly tall like he is in like in hollywood tall you know can just be six three this dude is really tall like when he stretches out i'm like ooh, it's minute bowl but really white I mean, he like he is I, like I said when I looked at him, I was like, "Is is that Paul Shear?" Because he looks like him, but it's not. And oh, he is so. This the thing about tall, lanky character actors and things. I mean, the guy that they got to play the original Alien, the Ridley Scott Alien, like they hired the guy simply because he was so tall and the way he lumbered around, it, it looked alien. It looked freakish to him. And I, the, this guy is so creepy. Like it's all the scenes he's in. He's only six feet tall. Yeah. He's only six feet. Really? He's shorter than I am. <laughs> oh my Jim Cummings is just that good of a director that he made him look that. that well, okay, that that's terrifying. even better because I did let's not know a, that. Let's give a lot of credit to Will Madden's body language. Yeah, and okay. the way they shoot him, they shoot him a lot from up, so you so he looks taller. And every time you see him, he's hunched over, he's pulled in on himself, and then so when he stretches and like stretches out, it, it's much more impressive, especially when you 
kind of shoot upwards a little bit and kind uh, of emphasize the change. It's 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 almost like it reminds me a lot of like if you watch uh, the original Superman and the Superman movies with uh, Christopher Reeve, how mm-hmm. Clark Kent's kind of stooped and and nerdy, and then when Superman comes, you just see him like tilt his chin back and drop his shoulders back, and it's just it's a very subtle body language change for Christopher Reeves. And it's a very big body language change for Will Madden that really makes it seem like he's like Angus Scrim tall. Okay. So yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I didn't know he was only six feet tall. I'm sitting there like they did. They find an yeah, Angus Scrim tall. Like a seven foot person. No, that's awesome. Well, okay. Then it is in the body language again, because there's other people I talked about, like their size made them, gave them that, but he's just doing that. That's really well done. Then I'm, I'm even more impressed now. That is uh, that is wild. So, what, what did y'all think about that though? Like the, the the attacks, the fact that they show us multiple times this wolf type character, and they go through all the you know, there's bite marks and claws and all this this stuff, and it's you know, it's doing genital mutilation and all the just the gross stuff. But all the the fact that the movie bothered to show us this thing that isn't there. I mean, it's not real. It's just it's just what the guy does. I really enjoyed that. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie is kind of how it faked out having a real werewolf. And then at the end, you're like, wait, hold on. What? Um, mm-hmm. Cause it really did it. I will. I think he mentions this or maybe this is just something I read, but how werewolves kind of were like an excuse for men that attacked women. And then they'd mm-hmm. be like, Oh, a, mm-hmm. a beast did it. A wolf did it. Like a man would never do this, but they would obviously. And I think that was a really great parallel that showed that. Um, and I think it was a really great way to showcase that because the whole time you're like, it's a werewolf. He can't control it. He's a werewolf. It's, you know, whatever. But then you see that it's just some dude and you're like, holy crap. It is like a human could absolutely do this to another human. And it, I don't know. It was a really great portrayal of kind of the violence against women and how it can often be covered up because people don't really want to accept that it's a man. Like I, the one thing that, that dawned on me watching it was I realized I was like, okay, this probably isn't going to be a werewolf. It's going to turn out to be a person or something like that. And I really thought it was going to be John. I was like, what they're telling us yeah. is that all his anger issues, he has these sort of blackout moments and he snaps and he just, you know, he goes on these killing sprees and because the other, you know, again, this is my horror trope. It's like, well, it's probably a cop doing it. You know, like it's, it's how you get away with it. And I've also seen a lot of true crime and that seems to work out that way. Joe Kenda taught me this, you know, but I mean, really like that's, I mean, that would work. And the fact that they play with that as a red herring and give you all those, all the excuses to think this is the guy that's doing it. Cause he's totally unhinged, but he's not, it's, that's just his screwed up life. But that's the, I think they're playing off of that metaphor too, is that he, at least he is trying to wrangle in all of his anger and deal with all of that versus the taxidermist who isn't, he has yeah. these moments where he just totally unleashes the beast, if you will. And that's, uh, that's a great thing about uh, how he, how the movie is structured and edited because we do get this jangled perception of time from him. It, every time you see John, it feels like he's lost time. Like, yeah. It feels like he's coming out of a fugue state or something. And there's such a solid grasp of how to, lure the audience into thinking oh well he's having all these gaps of time he's drinking again he's forgetting things he's waking up in broken glass and he's always got these injuries like he's putting the thing on his hand for his carpal tunnel or whatever he's picking up these although we see how he kind of gets that injury but you know 
he keeps seeming to wake up in like in like incriminating states, so to speak. That's just like such a trope of the werewolf movie too, is like that's what we see people that have the werewolf gene. That's where we see them, like after after the full moon, they're always waking up and they with having no idea where they just were and like glass everywhere and stuff like that. So that's really what makes you think that he could be the wolf if it were a real wolf. Yeah, I mean that was the thing that happened to the Oz character on on Buffy all the time. Was it like mm-hmm. did he get out of his cage? We locked him up. You know, he's constantly like there, there's all this back and forth about having to do that, and that you got to keep it caged in and all this stuff. And I fully expected us to like see him wake up and like have bloody hands or something yeah. at some point. Maybe they decided not to do that because it'd be too far. But I mean, he he punches his own teeth out. I mean, this this guy's got that scene problems. two is insane. Yeah, yeah. When he loses it at the AA meeting, yeah, that's that's really intense. Yeah, he's very much walking this wire of of being this character that's so full of rage, but also it's still being kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And maybe that says a, a, a lot about me that I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a really delicate balance, and the more I think about, it, the more impressed I am about his especially his acting performance, because this is not a likable character. Mm-hmm. And yet he's still appealing enough that you want to follow his journey. Cause that's, that's a, you get a lot of movies with unlikable protagonists that are much more difficult to watch, much more difficult to follow along with because you just said, Oh, this guy, this, I hate this guy. I hate this girl. I hate these people. Let's just get rid of them. But the whole time you're watching John, I'm kind of rooting for him to like pull it together and solve this crime and like yeah. to, to pull out of this downward spiral because he's got these people that seem to support him and want him to be well, want him to do well. And even after he starts to like push them away and snap at them and all this stuff, they seem to just like want to be there for him. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think there's two sides to read that for us. One is that, he's got the support system there for him if he wants to make real substantive changes in his life. But in some ways, the support system also enables all of his bad behavior because nobody ever really calls him on it except his daughter. Finally, when she's making out with a boyfriend and they get attacked and I don't know, the dude runs off Brock, whatever his name is like, what a loser, but you know, he runs off and she's, you know, in the streets with you know no pants on or whatever. And dad is telling her, like, why are you breaking curfew and all this stuff when I'm out here hunting werewolves and all this and doesn't even ask her how she is. And she calls him on it and she just lays it all out. It's like you can tell that may have been like the most honest moment she ever had with him, you know, and it clearly affects him. I mean, because he doesn't know how to talk to her anymore after that. And it's I mean, it's a powerful scene. It's played for laughs, though. And that's the funny part is they're using all the humor to get across this very serious subject matter. It's definitely like a a very interesting power shift too between them, because I feel like when you're a kid, obviously if you're, if your parent is an alcoholic or your parent is mistreating you, like you can't really do anything about it. But once you get older, especially when you're a teenager, you can really kind of shift that dynamic. Cause like, what's he going to do? Like Uh she holds all the cards now because she could always like go with her mom or whatever. And so that was a really powerful scene where I felt like she was really, really setting that boundary with him and in a way that she probably never had before. 
I mean, yeah, completely. And I mean, and I love like her last line is like, you need to take me to the hospital. I'm bleeding from the skull. And she just slams the door. But the way she says that, that line, again, I'm like, such a off line, but it works because then mm-hmm. Chloe uh, East just delivers that so well. And yeah, it's a, gr- it's, a, it's a great delivery of that line. And it feels like it feels like this is a that she's a girl who's had to <laughs> kind of fend for herself because mm-hmm. neither one of her parents seems to be great at parenting. So it feels like this is not the first time she's had to say, all right, you need to fix me some dinner or I need to go X place to do Y thing. <laughs> or in this case, I need to go to the hospital because I'm bleeding out of my skull. <laughs> right. Right. Oh yeah. It's such a, such a, a strange way of doing it. I'll tell you though, the creepiest part of the movie, maybe at the end when they do the shot with the guy and he's supposed to be taller than he is and all that stuff. But the, the creepiest part for me is when the ladies in the diner with her daughter, and what we'll learn later is the guy sits there and he's just trying to chat her up and you can see it just get oh my god really uncomfortable it's awful and it's so like you can tell that she knows that he's like icky and bad and she calls the police which is good thank god but oh my god that scene causes you to be so uncomfortable and if there's if there's so much tension there and nothing really happens which is what's really impressive about it like you just know something bad is coming. What gets me is on the rewatch, and I didn't notice it the first time, is when she's at the counter asking for the phone, you see his tall self just go behind her. And it's like, oh, 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 that is just so eerie to think about that he's just lurking out there. I caught that on the first watch, and I just assumed that he had kidnapped the, the baby. Oh. Yeah. But then again, I have a two-year-old, so I assume something bad is going to happen to every child in every movie. Right. I mean, but yeah, but you know, it's your lens, right? That gives you a different appreciation for it. Yeah. I mean, when I watched it, it just felt so realistic because I was like, this is a situation that so many women have to go through, like even on a daily basis where weird men will just like follow you and ask you questions about yourself. Like you owe them answers. And it's so degrading every time it happens, but it's like so normal that you wouldn't necessarily always call the police about it. So I don't know. The fact that she was able to do that, I was pretty impressed. Yeah, but this movie's incredibly deliberate. Like that's that's in there for two reasons. Like functionally, it's in there to show us that this creepy monster stalks people. And so this that's what he's doing here at this point. So she could have definitely been a victim at some point. But it's also to say, like, hey, you don't have to take that. Like, call the authorities. Like yeah. just d- go, use the resources that are there. Like you don't have to take that. Whether they take you seriously or not doesn't matter. Have the have your own power to go. Like no, I'm not. This guy's weird. Like you need to know about this. So at least there's a trail of it, right? Which I yeah. I appreciated that. And even if you're not a woman, if you've got a small child with you, strangers will come up and talk to you, and it's terrible. It's so <laughs> yeah. weird. Like what? Why? And and it's it's fine when they're just like oh she's cute how old is she blah 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 but when they like hang out and like try to talk it, it yeah just, it's unsettling like oh what's her name how old is she what she did she do this that and the other it's like I'm just like waiting in line for some coffee lady yeah or yeah. you're you know you're old enough to be her grandfather man just kind of give us some space or you are clearly a single childless man. Why are you here? I don't like you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, your mind can run in a lot of different directions with that. Right. And I think that's, again, that's why that scene is staged the way it is and why she's not alone in there. She's with her small child. Like it is that we got the double thread at the same time. 
which makes this movie, you know, werewolves a lot of times are their metaphor for something. We've already talked about they can be a metaphor for sort of covering up like male rage and stuff like that. But they're often used as a metaphor for like untamed puberty and not figuring out how to deal with all that. Right. This one has now taken it to a different place, too. It's that the looming thing, the literal wolf at the door that no one notices is there the whole time. And that's the thing is this guy, the, the text nervous is in almost every scene. He's just lurking around. And that's the, I mean, that's the, again, the true crime part of like, they always come back to their scene of their crime. And yes, yes, the, this guy does. And he's, yeah, like you said, he's there at every crime scene and they always find a reason to cut to him or have him interacting with someone about something every time there's a new body. And so it's, yeah, it's crazy that at least me, the, uh, when I watched it the first time, I didn't connect that it was that guy, but I also didn't connect that the guy who owned the Airbnb was also the taxidermy guy. So maybe that was just seeing him in a different light or something. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wondered the same thing too, because I was like, wait a minute, is that the same guy? And on second watch, I caught it, but I was like, oh yeah, that's how he caught him. Cause he's talking about, you know, can I go call my wife? And in the first scenes in the interrogations and then at the end, he's like, oh, I'm not married. And I was like, well, why is this in here? And I was like, oh, oh wait a minute. Oh, yeah. cause he looks so much creepier in the taxidermy house than he does when he's just uh, complaining <laughs> behind the wheel of his SUV. About not being able to rent his Airbnb out. Yeah, and, and may, maybe it's just because I just saw the trailer for the new one, but I got this whole Texas Chainsaw vibe off that house. I was like, oh yeah, there's <laughs> there's bo- there's bone furniture in this house. Like, this, is, this is not this is not good things happening. Yeah, m- mother is up in the attic, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I I was waiting for that. Like, yeah, he had a wife. She she couldn't <laughs> hack it. What a weird way to say that. You too. I was like, oh, oh, he hacked her is what that means. Absolutely. So, yeah. Like there's there's bodies all over. But again, they they do all these weird red herrings again, because there's that guy in the wife beater with the wolf tattoo burning something in a brush pile, just randomly thrown in there. And I was like, Am I watching a YouTube video? Like, who the hell is this guy? Like, what is he's nothing. He's nobody. Now, what is he burning that looks like a dead body? That's what I wanted to know. Was he burning a body? Was he burning like a deer carcass or something like that? Well, it looked that like was, a human butt. <laughs> right? But I couldn't tell. I was, it's just sort of random. It also been like him burning. A, Maybe he was like a different serial killer. That's a, good, we go. that's a good theory. Maybe this is like a whole town of serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can't expect. Or maybe he's one of the serial killers that like goes away and kills people other places. But he brought back a trophy or something. Yeah. Like, that, uh, like the guy in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I kept expecting like Ricky Lindholm to be like the werewolf for some reason. I, I don't know why I kept thinking she's the one who who does it. I think oh, that would be. Was, have you seen Werewolves Within? I have not, and I wanted to catch it Should, when it was on demand, but I never did. That that to me, this movie and that movie are like best friends in in my mind because they're very <laughs> very similar in the comedic or werewolf. But that's an ending I think you'll like. Now I have played the game. But I don't. <laughs> that might spoil the it then. But yeah, we do need to talk about Julia, though the Ricky Lindholm character, because again, she is the only one that ever seems to really have a level head. She yeah. does actual police work at different times. She's the she, only good cop. Yeah, she's. The, I mean, I think I'm not wrong. She's the only competent person in this whole town. Like, mm-hmm. the, she should run the town. She shouldn't just be sheriff. She should be mayor at the same time. Like. <laughs> 
but but it, but I mean she but she's also completely overlooked all the time, which is hard to do because Ricky Lynn Holmes kind of tall and has a very striking look. She's not someone you just ignore. So casting her is you're sort of hitting the nail on the head a lot. Like, see, you ignore even the most obvious answer in front of you. And there's that whole bit too, where he's, his dad's going like, look, you got to lead the team. You can't yell at them and all this stuff when they're, they're having the bad staff meeting or whatever. And they, the camera just looks over at her and she's just sitting there going like, can I please just run this meeting? <laughs> because they never, ever do it. And that's the idea. Right. But I mean, I, I liked her. I liked the way she played that though. Cause she never came off as, the stereotype like oh there's that you know that woman always just interrupting us and blah, 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 and all that stuff she was very just cool and she just she did her job she did her role and i thought she was fun and she got a couple of good zingers in too and i i don't know i got a kick out of it and i did laugh too at the very end when she's pulling her ponytail I had to cut a hole in it they don't make ponytails for these i'm like they don't make trucker hats where you're from i was like oh they're only <laughs> custom fits man the sheriff's department's got some dough in snow hollow yeah, they got the flex fit. It's nice. I mean, right? <laughs> They're spending the money on that instead of actually doing any police work. <laughs> I mean, true. That that. I mean, as we know, they should have all majored in computer science instead. Maybe we all should have. So, <laughs> if we'd been smart, but oh well. <laughs> Here we are. So, English see, major, I, communications major, film major. There we go. See, that's why. So. I thought, that's why I thought she was going to be the werewolf. I was like, she's yeah. way too competent, and she's got. She's got it too much together to not get away get away with. Oh, this. she could have gotten away with it easily, easily. Yeah, we wouldn't know. Like we would have no idea yeah. who the werewolf she, is. She absolutely so. could have gotten away with something else, and we just don't know. Yeah, it may, maybe maybe she was married to the serial killer burning the butt in the backyard. I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, we will never She's know. She's the guy with the wolf tattoo. Right. Um, I mean, it could be. <laughs> I did like though that she she's she does cruise up and she does save him. You know, because mm-hmm. John. I mean, not as he gets stabbed, he gets like lifted up off the ground. Jason stabbed. And I was like, oh, well, we're going to get a real gory death here. But he lived from that? Are you kidding me? That was kind of wild. Now, it takes a while to die from a stomach wound. So, I, Yeah, clearly. Because that was – but it was impressive. Like, again, I and we have, have, if we haven't said it enough, the practical effects in this movie are amazing. It's so good. Even, like, the wolf suit that the – the wolf suit that you see throughout the movie is great. But at the yes. end, when you see – um the taxidermy character wearing the wolf body mm-hmm. and he's doing the wolf noises and making the wolf faces. It it's really intimidating. It's really scary. And it, it's somehow more disturbing than seeing the full wolf mask slaying people. But the, yeah, the whole thing well, you know, it's a guy now, you know, it's just some dude in like a suit and that's so much worse in every way. <laughs> All I could think of was this is what M. Night Shyamalan should have done at the end of the village (laughs) instead of what we got. It just just made me think, oh, this is the dark side of furries. I mean, mean, we have different perspectives here, clearly. But I mean, no, that, but uh, that is a great scene. That's why I said the second creepiest scene was the guy in the restaurant. The creepiest one is this ending because when he goes total wolfo, and that, I mean, I was like, oh, oh, this is even more unhinged than John is. Will Madden absolutely killed that role because I don't know how, I don't know how a human could do that. It was incredible. 
Yeah, I was really impressed with how that went down. I I wanted to see more of that, but I'm kind of glad that they just peppered it in. It was just enough. <laughs> and I mean, and then he kills him. He kills him good. And it's sort of a throwback to what the, the first victim's boyfriend or husband or whatever says. is like, when you get him, I want you to shoot him until he's dead. And yeah. he does. He shoots <laughs> him a lot. And I was like, okay. that. But you know what? Good on you for listening to Sidney Prescott and all the Scream movies. You got to shoot him in the head a lot. <laughs> We got to talk about this end, though, y'all, where John and Julia are dropping off the daughter at college. And again, there's obviously Jenna and, and, and John have a very strained relationship. We know this. Like, she's like, whatever, Dad, leave me alone, you know, and mom couldn't make it and all this. But the fact that he leaves her with condoms and her grandfather's pistol. <laughs> the, the thing and those two guys are coming up like yeah fresh meat and he's just like don't kill him don't kill him she'll do it for me you know i'm like what this is so funny like that is such a, a humorous beat in this movie and the way she smiles like yeah <laughs> like that's i i work at universities you can't have those in the dorm kids like you can't have a 38 i'm sorry <laughs> you, you're not supposed to have them in the dorm. Yeah, that's, that's good point. Good point. You can. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, it, I really liked that ending because it kind of felt almost like he was trusting her more and like actually listening to what she had said before. And I was like, okay, this is good. You mean when you went off to college, your parents didn't give you three condoms and a gun? No, those two things they did not give me. Um, <laughs> and that's a surprise. But no, I think that the whole idea is that, yes, he is trusting her more, but he's sort of the sigh. I felt like at first I was like, is he sighing because, oh, here's these horny dudes going after my daughter? Or it's more of like, I've given her everything she needs. Also, she's pretty tough. So I'm just going to go away now. <laughs> and he sort of slinks off into the morrow. I feel like it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank God I don't have to worry about that for another, <laughs> you know. 16 years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's give Ron some more anxiety about his kid here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad enough when they killed the three-year-old and that was, that was terrifying. That was awful to me and almost turned the thing off. But yeah, you know, and then between Robert Forrester dying of a heart problems and them killing a toddler, it was, it was a rough go for me. It comes out of nowhere too. Like you're not expecting it. Yeah, I wasn't expecting either one of those things. I was expecting the toddler to be fine because that's how it works in movies. Mm -hmm. But it ties back to something we talked about very early in the podcast about how this movie sets things up and then doesn't give you the obvious. Like, mm. you know, they set up these kind of what could be played for comedy deaths, but then you get these gory death scenes. They set up that, you know, the mom's going to die, but the kid's probably going to be okay. But no, they're both dead. And here's a little coffin. And, you know, Robert Forster's got these heart problems, but he's probably going to be, oh, no, wait, he's going to die, too. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, it caught me by surprise at pretty much every turn. And I, I can't be pleased enough by that. I mean, yeah, it, it is the subverting of expectations and then hitting you in the face with sort of some harsh reality and then capping it with a laugh. Like, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to pull off like in writing i can see how you can pull that off because there's there's good pieces of literature that do that and, and can do that for you and i can even see a script that could do that but actually getting that to translate to the screen that's a different set of skill and that's again why i'm i'm interested in seeing where jim cummings goes next because he's clearly got something and you know we, we give this guy 
a real budget and some some you know other actors and stuff. I'd be curious to see what he does and some real distribution. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, there's there's something to be had here. I think for sure. We're definitely at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what do we have here, Corey, from you for The Wolf of Snow Hollow? Large popcorn. Uh, I really, really love this movie. And I don't it, just the way that it's able to subvert every genre that's in it is so fascinating to me. And I think it's just a really cool piece. Um, if you, My recommendation for if you like this one, definitely watch Werewolves Within, like I was saying. Um, they came out at kind of the same time, and they feel very very similar and i would also say death becomes her cooties and jennifer's body just with the balance of comedy and horror especially from a feminist angle those ones are great two thumbs up on the death becomes her by the way so that's that's such a, a such an underrated movie yeah, and another thumb and another two thumbs up for jennifer's body i love that movie it's one of my all-time favorites i will concur with Corey that this is a large popcorn movie the more i thought about it and the more i went over it with you guys the more i liked it I find that horror comedy is like one of the hardest things to pull off and even doubly so when it's this kind of extremely very gory horror and this very like awkward kind of comedy. And yet this movie does it really well and it's incredibly well written and Jim Cummings is a great lead for this movie. I was very impressed by how he's able to pull off this character and he's got a great supporting cast of people around him. But, um, you know, there's two important things about a horror comedy. One, it's got to be funny. One, it's got to be a horror movie. And this is good at both of those. And that's really hard to pull off. So large popcorn. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, when I watched this the first time, I was like, you know, okay, that's a good solid medium popcorn. But at that second watch and catching all the subtlety of it again, I was like, oh, this is something way beyond. And then just taking into account, what they had to work with. And this is what you came up with. It's pretty darn impressive. And it's like I said, it made me want to go like, I want to see Thunder Road and this other stuff this guy's done. And I want to see where he goes next. And if you could do that, then you got me hooked. And so it's definitely large popcorn territory because again, when you weave in all the, the really important and smart subtext into a movie without beating people over the head with it, And it's not that we don't need to beat people over the head with some of this stuff, but the way that's done is such a better way of delivering a message. And I I really think this movie balances all that out. And the other thing too, is that this is a short one. Like it does not require a lot of your time, but if you will give it the time, you will have a good time with it. So large popcorn for me as well. And glad you brought this one to us, Corey, because it's uh, all you never fail to deliver on the podcast, but definitely <laughs> delivered on the movie for sure. So, Thank Corey, tell me, pick. I was so excited to get to talk about it. Absolutely. Well, like I say, you've dropped three or four in here. We're going to have to have you back on for now. So, uh, <laughs> definitely, because uh, we, we've never done a Meryl Street movie at all, and Death Becomes Her might have to break that curse. So, uh, so we'll, we'll get into that uh, <laughs> another day on Film Search. So, Corey, tell folks again how they can follow you and all the cool things you're doing. You can find me on my blog at gorycory.com. You can find me on Twitter at gorycoryhorror. And you can find me on Instagram at underscore gorycory underscore. And you can find my podcast, The Scream Teens, on the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network. Awesome. Ron, what do you got going on at Den of Geek? Uh, You can find me at Den of Geek. I'll be covering the second part of the last season of The Walking Dead. And I'll be just finishing up with Snowpiercer. And probably do some other stuff dropped in there, here or there. And, of course, you can always find me running the Filmstrip Twitter account and trying to be funny and failing. 
<laughs> I would say you do a good job of being funny at that. And just so we can keep with the theme here uh, on Filmstrip, we're going to do American Werewolf in London next. So a couple weeks from now, we're going we're gonna to break the can off of that one. I've only seen it once, and it was about three or four years ago. So you know that'll, that'll be a fun one to get into uh, here on the show. You can always follow the show's social media at FilmstripPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Find announcements about upcoming shows and Ron's great humor and all the other cool stuff that we're into. And a link to our letterbox page, which contains an entire list of all of our reviews. So if you're looking through the podcatcher and you go like, holy cow, what, did you guys ever cover this? Look on that letterbox page. There's a good chance that you'll find it there if we haven't. Or you'll be surprised that we haven't done something, which always surprises folks. Uh, go to FilmstripPodcast.com. That's a link to our anchor.fm distribution site where you can find the podcast on the platform of your choice apple google all the places we are there please rate the show where you're available and share the show on your social media leave us a positive review because it helps other people find the podcast so for Corey and ron i'm jay thank you for listening to filmstrip thank you for listening to filmstrip you can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.